I'm Karen Stark, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Leslie Pierce, Professor of History, Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Karen, for inviting me. Of course. Uh, we're honored to have Dr. Pierce here at CEU, and you're the speaker this year at our annual Nan Natalie Zeman Davis Lecture Series, and you're lecturing on the topic of aspects of captivity in the world of the Ottomans, which is a very rich topic, but I'm wondering what led you in your research in Ottoman studies to this topic? Why, uh, what made it interesting for you? Uh, I think it was my dissertation work. Yes. <laughs> um, there was a period in Ottoman history uh, 16th and 17th centuries known as the Sultanate of Women and I had to come up with a topic for my first research paper and I thought that I wanted to work on that figure out what that was about and my professor said no information come back next week a uh, better topic that you can actually do I went away and realized I could do the topic and I got a different advisor mm. and um, the whole story of this period is about um, the greater importance of women who were living in the imperial harem. And they were all concubines of the sultans and their sons. And um, they were originally enslaved. So my interest began there. Not so much in the slave aspect, the captivity aspect of it. I was more interested in these women's political power but now, some 25 years later, I am coming back to the topic and I'm interested in the question of their captivity and much more broadly, the whole issue. Something I was surprised when I started to look into this topic and what you've written on it is uh, that captivity is opportunity. That's something I never imagined that um, captives and slaves in the Ottoman Empire, that they had chances for advancement in the society. And how did that happen? How It seems like singular to the Ottoman Empire. Well, I guess as I said in my lecture yesterday, we need to be really careful about the opportunity because not all slaves had opportunity. Not all captives did. It was probably the more talented or probably also um, slaves and captives who were working um, in households that provided them with opportunity. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a small portion of the, uh, the rest we don't know about because they don't hit the historical record. They don't give the historical record. Um, but I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one is that masters and mistresses, owners of slaves, um, have a kind of ethical imperative to improve the lives of their slaves. I should stop here and say that most slaves have been converted to Islam. So you've got a slave who's a new Muslim, and um, you sort of want to integrate them into this society that they have joined. So there's um, emphasis on two things, uh, freeing them, manumitting them, giving them their freedom. Of course, we don't know how many were actually freed, but that moral imperative is there. Uh, it's a kind of a religious, um, it's a good deed in the, the eyes of Allah to do that. So um, that's one avenue that gives them opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, if it works well, the household in which they are serving um, will prepare them for that life. Um, I guess the second big channel, and which I talked about, is particular, particularly if you are in a developed or a wealthy household, um, there's going to be a lot of differentiation of service. And um, you, particularly if you're talented or you show, um, you know, ambition maybe, or you really want, you can be taught a skill. Um, and I cannot say how that skill may actually translate into your future um, life. Mm. But, um, for example, if you're freed, you've, you've got something to fall back on. Um, this is true of women as well. I mean, their domestic or their household skills may develop. So, um, so manumission um, within the household in which you are serving, um, being able to rise to a higher position, a level of comfort, 
um, to become a different kind of slave, not menial work, but maybe more elegant service to the family. So they really were part of the family, in a way? We th- or at least of the religious family um, first. Did slaves have to um, convert to Islam? This is a complicated issue, because where do slaves come from, and just how, how does somebody become a slave? Right. Um, so there's some kind of rules there that need to be observed, and you cannot enslave a Muslim. Oh. Um, so if you're living in the Ottoman Empire, um, and you, you're, you need to find a slave that's been a Christian, you know, you can enslave Christians, sorry to say, but this was a population that, that you could. Um, there are rules about that, too, which we can talk about later if you're interested. Yeah, actually, that so, would be very interesting. Um, and did slaves ever, well, sorry, I interrupted you. I forgot the question we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, did slaves ever rise to such a status where they were freed that they started owning their own slaves? Could that happen? That could happen. Mm. That could happen. Um, yeah. We we know about that in uh, within the whole realm of the dynasty, the ruling dynasty, the Ottoman mm-hmm. ruling dynasty, and the slaves that it brings in to serve its massive household. Um, so we know that um, this is true of the women as well as the men. But I'll give you an example of of um, a slave brought in. I'll take a very famous one, Ibrahim Pasha. Um, We think his father was a fisherman um, on the Adriatic coast, probably the northern Greek Adriatic coast Mm -hmm. today, or southern Albanian, Um, and he is brought into the system. He's trained very well. It's recognized that he's talented. Um, He becomes very close to Suleiman, uh, the Sultan Suleiman I, we're talking 16th century here, and he rises up within his household, he becomes his chief falconer, and then he is graduated out of palace service, and he eventually becomes the Grand Vizier. Quite rapidly, he rises up, becomes the Grand Vizier, and um, he then establishes his own household. He's married and begins to build his own household, and I think he has 1,700 slaves is one comment we see in the mm. sources. So yes, wow. yes. Mm. So going back to this question about the household, yes. um, we generally say that we don't have plantation slavery as we know it in the United States South. Mm. I'm an American, so this is my model of what <laughs> slavery is. Mm. Um, but rather slaves um, are incorporated within the family household. I mean, they're working for the family. They belong to the family. Now, if it's a very wealthy family, it's going to have hierarchies of servants and mm-hmm. slaves. Um, but still, we think that slaves are individually associated with the family that they have been purchased by. Yeah, I, I'm also an American, so this is the model I have for slavery <laughs> yes. as well. And it's so interesting hearing um, you talk about the um, slavery or, or captivity, whatever you want to call it, in the Ottoman world, because it's so different. It's, it seems like a more of a mobile system, more fluid. Things are changing. You're not um, you're not stuck in one social rank. At least that's or at least there's opportunities. Maybe, maybe, right. maybe. Mm. I mean, as I said, I just want to repeat because mm. it's important. All of those slaves who don't enter any kind of historical record, legal um, records, and so forth, we just mm. don't know. And we know about the people that made it into the record. So um, I just, I know I'm being super cautious about, we can't generalize. But yes, for for some, and I don't know what proportion, um, you learned. Mm. Presumably you learned. And uh, And if there was opportunity, you could advance and possibly be freed. And Mm. I should say that it's not slave free. It's Mm. slave freed person huh, and free born mm-hmm. um, so, so a, that's an interesting distinction in the society yeah. I yeah. think so um, you know as I said in my lecture I think twice the first time dissertation needs to be written on freed persons they're so important um, so yeah I think there's that concept they have mm-hmm. an, they have a, a label you know mm-hmm. that says freed person legally was there a mm-hmm. distinction? Yes. Mm. Well, I'm not sure. Mm. 
It shows up in legal. I know this from legal records. Whereas the person is, I, where the person is identified as, you know, the freed person, Mahmet, living in the neighborhood of whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, I I'm not an expert on freed persons, um, but I don't know how long that tracks you. You know, your mm-hmm. child is presumed. When is your child born free? You right. know, when does the freed person? When does mm-hmm. that freed status disappear? Yeah, I, um, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. No, it's okay. so. um, you did, did say in your lecture that um, if the son or daughter of a slave um, woman, um, if the father is the master, then their child is freed, a freed person, you would say. Is that right? Are they a freed person or are they freeborn? So the scenario mm-hmm. is a slave woman with a Muslim master has a child with him, um, he has to acknowledge paternity. Okay. That's part of the story here. But we don't, we rarely see acknowledge paternity in the records. So presume, presuming that he, that's his son and he recognizes him. Yeah. Um, Islamic law gives her certain rights. She's known as Omwalad, mother of child. And um, if the rules are followed, she cannot be sold when she's born a child, and she cannot be given away. And on the death of her master, she's automatically freed. So here's yeah. a, an, another yeah. channel up and out, so to speak, of, mm-hmm. of captivity. Yeah. And I'm, the child is born free. Mm. free. I mean, so not, the child is born free. He, mm. we, I'm, I'm trying to quote my professor in graduate school. It is not like Roman law. And I don't want to make a mistake about Roman law here but that the child does not follow the status of the mother. He follows the status of the father. That's a fascinating aspect of that, Uh that you would think that um, a woman who's, maybe she's a concubine or something in the uh, master's house, but yet she can rise because she has a child um, with the master. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think we're going to take a, a short break, and we'll be right back.
welcome back. Um, I'm Karen Stark, and we're joined today by Leslie Pierce. Uh, I want to turn our discussion uh, to your book, um, The Imperial Harem, Women and Sovereignty in the Ottoman Empire, uh, which explores the shifting imperial politics within the concept of the, the harem. And I think it's something important to talk about because the idea of a harem is in Western popular mind is something far different than what it actually was. So can you clarify for the listeners what is a harem and what role it played in, uh, in, in politics and in social life? Uh, well, the term harem, the root of the word has to do with sort of sacred, on one hand, sacred, um, uh, a kind of a sanctuary space. And on the other hand, it has it carries the idea of taboo. And you can see how they go together. I mean, within a protected space, certain people are taboo. They can't enter certain forms of activity or social intercourse. So that's kind of where the root plays around here. I should say within, I studied the imperial household in this mm -hmm. book. And... Um, the term harem was used for this the section of the palace where the sultan lived and where um, these young slave boys, we talked about slaves in the first segment, are being educated. Uh, it's an interior space. Um, he lives in his palace. His palace mm -hmm. is where he lives and where the empire's business is done. So it's a series of courtyards, linearly disposed, and he's in an interior there. And that was called the Imperial Harem. Harem Hermayun was a librarian at Princeton that pointed this out to me. You think while I'm doing my research, I should know this. And he's interesting that the male section was called this too. And I'm like, oh, so it's not necessarily associated with women. I mean, if you can call this in protected imperial inner imperial space where the Sultan lives a harem, you've got the point here. Yes. Um, and one of the historians, Nishri. Uh, late 15th century historian of the Ottomans, an Ottoman himself, he talks about um, the building of this palace. It was called the New Palace, um, but today we know it as the Tokkapa Palace, where all yes. the you know, tourists go, and it's a great place. He talks about Mehmed the Conqueror, who, who um, took, took Constantinople from the Byzantines. He talks about the building of the palace, and he says, you know, he built some buildings, and then he put a wall around it, and he made it a harem, a harem. Mm. And so you can see what he's saying. He's got the buildings there, um, and now he's protected it and made it a space in which people can't enter. So um, it also, and I don't know historically when all of these meanings were on the table, um, it also means um, the interior part of a domestic you know, of a residence, of a household. It doesn't have to be a big one. But, you know, this is where the family is. So it's the women and the children. But the man can come in there, too. I mean, it's oh. where his family is living. Yeah, that's but it has, you know. Yeah. What's in our imagination, yeah. I think. I guess, you know, if you're, if you're nomads living in a tent, you know, even, even then you will see space articulated by, mm. you know, stringing up these great um, Mongol tents or, you know, where there's a private section of the tent. You know, mm -hmm. so that and so, you know, by extension it comes to mean the women the women in there. Mm -hmm. If you are articulating your household that way, if you have a big enough space and enough people in it that you can actually define um, a private domestic area, the women living there, particularly women of high status, or the women living within the the household are not gonna go out in public too much. So this is mm -hmm. a place where, you know, they can live within the home but they're private. So that's where we get that. And then we get harem as, you know, slave girls, naked slave girls, yeah. sex objects, and all <laughs> of all that. Yes. The, like, yes. Line. So, you mm -hmm. know, it, it acquires a range of meanings. Um, and was this something that, it makes sense to me that the Sultan would have such a space because it closes him off and makes him special, sacred, separate from regular society. Were other noble families, if, I don't know if you can use the term noble families, copying him? when they kind of had their own harems, or was it happening at the same time? Who was copying whom, in yeah. my mind? Chicken or the egg. Uh, the chicken <laughs> or the egg. Um, I think everybody was doing it. Uh, every, 
everybody was doing it. Let me qualify that. Um, people of status showed their status by the size of their um, living space and their ability to articulate. Okay, um, the male head of household, you know, the dad, the he's he will have a reception room of his own if he's really wealthy. I showed the slide um, in class, a class in my lecture, um, where he would receive people coming to him. Um, I forgot the question you asked me. Oh, Where was um, I going with that? <laughs> if the, it started with the Sultan, if he set the trend. He did. He, I think it, he had to do that, right? I mean, this is already, you know, many, many centuries here of this style of living. He had to do it. He had the biggest one and the best one and so forth. Um, so I think that it was just simply the way you lived, simply mm. the way you lived. But certainly some things he did set fashions. People are watching. People are looking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, remember reading, I think, uh, an essay you wrote um, about the harem. And you mentioned, I think, in the 13th or the 14th centuries, that women would receive people, uh, male guests, and everything, go out in the street. And then by the 16th century, you had this kind of harem culture where you stayed within Mm. the home. Or even if you went out, you would have a retinue around you, so you had a moving harem. What ha- what have happened? What, what about this change? That you... um, okay, we have to do a little history here. <laughs> so I'm I was talking and have been thinking about what happens when um, the they're not Ottomans yet, mm. um, but when um, Turkish speaking peoples Turks we'll call them Turks, which is sort of a twentieth century term, um, move into Anatolia. You know, they're moving in from Central Asia through Iran. This is a long historical process. And they come into Anatolia. Um, I don't want to say that they're not urbanized, but they're more freely living people. I mean, they're not moving into these big households. And um, Ibn Battuta, who is this traveler, traveler, he was so much more than a traveler. Um, He was from Morocco. Mm -hmm. We're talking early 1330s here. And he's traveling through North Africa, Egypt, you know, the settled lands that have, you know, been Muslim-dominated politically. And he moves into Anatolia, um, where you've still got plenty of Greeks living there, you know, former... There are Byzantine subjects at this point, right? Constantinople is still there. (laughs) It's shrinking. Byzantine Empire is shrinking. And he talks about women being out on the streets. And they come out to greet him. Now, who are those women? You know, maybe there were women who were more elite, more showing their status by not going out in the streets to see Ibn Battuta. The people that would hope that Ibn Battuta would come and visit them and be their guest. So, um, so I think you do you do have a society that's less conscious about class, mm-hmm. or less interested maybe in demonstrating it through. Um, through management of your person and whether you're going into public or not. Um, I never saw this image. I saw a reproduction, but when I was doing my research, the um, head of the Topkapi Library showed me, uh, I asked for images of women that I could put in my book, and she said, well, here's a wonderful one of, this is the Sultan in the middle of the 15th century, Murat II, and he's sitting on a a dais, is that what you call it, Um, with his wife. And there's an Im- a husband and wife, and it's an image where you can actually look. So by the middle of the 16th century, uh, 15th century, we have this. But by the mm-hmm. time we get to the 16th century, you would not see images of women. So uh, I don't know if this is an international process. I mean, if we looked at Italian city-states, we would see more of this going on, or whether it's a specifically Ottoman. But there, there becomes a greater consciousness of... I'm going to say class here. It might not be the right term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, yeah. I, I wish I could say exactly how that happened, <laughs> but it is it is a gradual. Mm-hmm. And that becomes, and in that case, maybe the sultan is the style setter. Imperial sure. household is the yeah. style setter. If things are changing and they begin to be more careful about public appearances, then, then I think you're right there. That could be. Mm-hmm. But I need to say here that men aren't going out publicly are not necessarily either huh. the more the the higher your status the more you expect as a wealthy uh powerful influential male let's not say sultan yet um and you have a household that can be articulated mm-hmm. into the harem section and 
the male section, which is called Selamluk, um, you expect your underlings, you expect petitioners, people who want to do business to come to you. You don't mm -hmm. go to them. So that your residence can be a kind of a place of business in the sense you're negotiating and so forth. So, um, yeah, and gradually the sultan doesn't go out, or the sultan becomes more a monarch of his palace, mm. and that that speeds up in the 16th century as well. So yeah. he just doesn't go out at all. He's kind of becomes a mythical. No, no, no. He. Um, I have to explain this, and sometimes I think about. I always think about Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, and where are they living? And now we have Hilary Mantel's wonderful novels. Um, so I really think about: Is Henry? How often is Henry going out of his palace? How often is does Cromwell come to him? Does Wolsey come to him? And I, I, I wish I knew the exact answer to that. When he goes out. He's going to go out on a horse with these great costumes that we're used to seeing, getting larger and larger. You know, he's having a retinue when he goes out. He just doesn't go out and meet Henry. Mm. Well, the same, the, let's just say that the Ottoman sultans are doing that perhaps in a more exaggerated way. Right. Um, so when Su oh, Suleiman goes out, mm. and you do go out, and you, it's important for you to go out, but you go out in state, in state. I mean, you with, go out with with, with the have. retinue yeah. and, you know, with all your pomp and glory and all the things you need to show that you're the sultan, you know, if it's mm -hmm. a huge, if he's going to war, he's going to have a very long parade of people who count and they're going to be arranged and they're dressed differently and people will know these are these people and these are the Janissaries and this mm -hmm. is the great lord of this and so forth. So, you know, you take... You, you take your government with you when you go out. A lot of but those are staged, very pomp and circumstance. Yeah. So those are staged events. Mm -hmm. Those are staged events. So, um, but after, I mean, Suleiman has 13, 13 campaigns, military campaigns. Mm -hmm. He goes hunting a lot. Uh, so every time he's going somewhere, I'm sure there's events, news, and people are on the streets, and the equivalent of policemen are out there, and, you know, let's line them up. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that dynamic is working for males as well. Well, yeah. well I have to uh, stop us just for a moment for a short break, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. Uh, again, I'm Karen Stark, uh, joined by Dr. Leslie Pierce. I want to bring up another book that you're currently working on, which is the biography of Harem, uh, who was the consort and wife of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And she's such a fascinating character. I think she's maybe the poster girl of the opportunity in captivity uh, idea. And uh, Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you... Tell us a little bit about her and why she's interesting, why you chose to, to write about her. She's one of the two women I talked about in the mm. first part when I got interested in writing my dissertation in my first book. She's interesting because she apparently was Suleiman's great love. Mm. That's what the public knows, right? Um, in my dissertation, I didn't want to talk about that because I was being academic. And, mm. and she's very interesting for her, her career. Um, we're not, we don't know exactly where she was from, but it seems almost certain that she was from what is today the Western Ukraine, um, which then at the time of her capture was, um, under Polish sovereignty. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Yeah, under Polish sovereignty. Um, so... She was probably taken by Crimean Tatar raiders. Um, the Ottomans encouraged them, bought a lot of slaves from them. So I think of the Ottomans as part of this whole operation. It's not just the Tatars going, capturing her. So we don't know that for sure, but that seems to be the way. And then she probably would have been taken east um, to the Crimean Peninsula um, and sold there. This is the story I'm telling, but it's probable. Sold there, possibly to a dealer sent by the Ottoman palace to acquire slaves, possibly not understood as a valuable uh, slave. She just sold to some slave dealer, and she ended up on the slave market in Istanbul. Huh. Um, so we don't know how she got from there to the palace in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Could have been that a slave dealer bought her, probably a woman, would train her, recognize that she had possibilities, train her, and then sell her up, so mm -hmm. to speak. Or if she was acquired directly by the palace, she would have been um, examined, looked at, trained, you know, and then they would figure out talent, beauty, whatever. So there are various ways in which she would have made it mm -hmm. as, I'm going to say 15 here. Um, as someone concubine, as concubine material. Okay. There are stories that she was a gift to Suleiman or to Suleiman's mother, um, varies. I can explain about yeah. the mother, um, from one of his sisters, that his sisters would have acquired this promising, talented slave and given her as a gift. Giving a trained slave is, is, a, is a very high-level gift. Um, so I should say that Suleiman comes to the throne, he's 26, in 1520, and he acquires her, you know, whether his mother gave her to him or he saw her at a reception. I think that's the way they didn't just go grab them, you know, be my kind of uh, he, he He chose her, we assume, and then that began her career. So, you know, how she actually got from there to there is an interesting story we don't really know. But we have enough evidence to say. So, um, the rule here is, and why she's really interesting, because all the rules are broken for her. Mm. All of the um, accustomed parameters of a royal concubine's career are broken for her. The first is that um, she has a baby, boy, Mehmet, uh, about a year after uh, Suleiman comes to the throne. So she know we know she was an early concubine, and that should have been it for her. That should have taken her out of his bed. No more sex with her. Really? But the so rule is that mm. a concubine mother should only have one son. And this is mm. some... I discovered this rule. <laughs> or I sussed this out of the material. Um, if she has a daughter, you can keep her. You know, you can have three daughters, the son, that's it. The whole point here is that your mother is your greatest political asset. She devotes mm. her career to you. Um, she stays with you now. Through your training, if you get to be Sultan, great, she becomes queen mother, right? Mm. So um, that's why. And now I need to say another thing about Ottoman politics. Um, they don't practice primogeniture, which Western Europe is mm. pretty much used to, right? right? The succession of the eldest son. Mm. 
Um, they believe that all princes have, should have an, all princes who are mentally sound, healthy, and so forth, um, have an equal shot at the throne. Mm-hmm. And so you can see why you need your own mom if she's your big political ally and lobbies on your behalf and mm-hmm. so forth. So she has several children. It's Mehmet, um, a daughter, son, 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 son. She has five sons. One dies in infancy. One is a hunchback. Um, probably not a word we should use today, but I'm mm-hmm. using it because this is ancient times. Yeah. Um, and so that rule is broken for her. The next rule that is broken for her. Oh, can I pause? Yes. Is that a love story? Is that a love story? It is that sounds like yeah. <laughs> clearly yeah. he liked her. Yeah. And hopefully and he's the Sultan. Hopefully she yeah. liked him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that a political decision that was made early on? Because things will change with her. Mm-hmm. Um so that happens. Uh, the next thing, she's supposed to go, when her son comes of age, he is sent out to the provinces to learn how to be a potential sultan. And she's supposed to go with him and be the head of his female household. Now she's got a bunch of kids, right? She doesn't go. And this troubles people. Mm-hmm. Her first son or second son. The next thing, she she's supposed to leave. She's not supposed to be the sultan's sexual partner anymore. And even if they weren't sleeping together, you know, mm-hmm. she's there with him. It's an intimate couple. They're mm-hmm. a couple. They're a couple. Then he marries her. He marries her. Or they have a formal marriage, Mm -hmm. which means she has to be freed. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's a complicated legal thing. So she has to be freed and he marries her. And then the last thing that happens, the women and children live in a separate palace. It's like a mega harem palace. Mm -hmm. Eunuchs and, you know, plenty of servants. And it's a huge household. She moves into his palace, which has been an all-male structure we were talking about the inner male harem she moves in she's gone into a male structure and a a new harem annex begins to be developed and then that will grow by the beginning of the 17th century into a very major part of the palace Mm -hmm. i mean when you go today you get the store of the of the harem and you only see a tiny bit of it so um so she i think of her as the founder of the imperial harem within the palace and it, it it becomes a political a political institution, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. by the, the uh, 17th century. So she broke all these rules, and you can see why there was a lot of negative press about her. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So was this a? Yeah. So I guess is it a love story, or is it a, what political gain could uh, have been brought from this? I, I can't imagine. Now we have to talk about the succession system a little more because this mm-hmm. is what changed. Um, these brothers competing, they actually duke it out, and we get some civil wars. And it's a fight to the death. Mm-hmm. Fight to the death. And um, if you are, Suleiman's father did this. Suleiman was a teenager during this bloody period when his father had to mm-hmm. eliminate his brothers, and that's also eliminating all of their sons. It's wiping out all collateral lines. So it becomes a pretty violent process. I mean, it's all for the greater good. I mean, princes are bred, I think, I say this in the book, mm. are bred to die nobly. I mean, if they're the loser. Okay. So um, this becomes by the 16th century, by the middle of the 16th century, when Suleiman's sons are duking it out, mm. um, a, a, a story of potential civil war. I mean, mm-hmm. people line up, factions gather around these princes and... Uh, and for other geopolitical reasons, it's not a good system. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ottomans have met their match in Iran. They have met their match um, in the Habsburg, uh, in Hungary, mm-hmm. <laughs> against the Habsburgs in the sea. Um, eastern half of the Mediterranean is sort of now, they, but they almost in effect divided Mediterranean sovereignty. And it's time to be working on peace treaties. Mm-hmm. And um, you maybe need a different kind of sultan. Um, so this is what I wrote in, about in my first book how the roles of women changed in line with this. Mm. So Suleiman's sons are out in the field, and it is a very bloody event. And it doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Uh, It changes with the son who does become sultan, that's Selim II. And we have this process of of shifting to a whole new system of succession. He only sends out his eldest. Mm. And then he sort of automatically becomes, it's looking like primogeniture. And then by the beginning of the 17th century, the sultans are are not, how do I want to put this diplomatically? They're not 
bred to be great military leaders. Conquest is sort of mm. over, but defending the empire is there. And you have a whole new system of succession, um, mm. whereby each male still has his shot, whereby it's the eldest. Mm. You know, and it might be your cousin, it might be your son. It, so, uh -huh. And I wonder, this is one of the big questions in the book, was that a, a relationship that began, why can she have five sons? This is not appropriate. Right. Um, it was that a strategy, or did it develop into a strategy, a plan that would somehow, a realization that the system has to be changed? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe were the sons even told, I haven't written this, but now it occurs to me, I should, were they, you know, we hope that whoever succeeds won't do this anymore. I'd like to imagine mm -hmm. that. So I can't say that for sure. But I do want to ask those questions about why this relationship was allowed to be that way. I say allowed mm -hmm. um, because I, I have a big question about Suleiman's mother here. Oh, yes. Tell us uh, about his mother. Yeah. I, you know, is she saying, you can't have this woman back in your bed? You can't. You've got to obey the rules. Or was she saying... I can see the logic in this, or, oh, go for it. I don't know what she was thinking. We know so little about what she was thinking. But um, will you understand why he's close to his mother, yeah, the old system? Mm -hmm. I mean, she's the one who's helped him through. Um, and she was apparently a very astute lady. But mm -hmm. the training of these concubines means you better be astute if you're going to be the mother of a, of a prince. Um, he treated her very well. He wrote her you know, a victory letter. He wrote it himself out there on the frontier. And um, she she's she was a very great woman. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I knew more about her because I'd like to make her a bigger yeah. player in the book. And I, so I, 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 he would listen to her advice. Mm -hmm. He would definitely. And Hurem herself, if she was the gift of this woman, in fact, mm -hmm. we know something there. But maybe she, maybe she's she playing this all her. along. Yeah. I don't know. You can't say. You're still an historian. You mm. know, you can only put the probabilities out there. Right. I mean, if I wrote the novel, I I don't know what I would do with his mother if I wrote a novel. Mm. Yeah. Hafsa Sultan. Hafsa I want Sultan. to say her name. Hafsa. Mm. Was her, the name given to her when she was. It's surprising, actually. Um maybe not surprising, but to see how strong women were in the imperial politics, that they were the ones pushing their son's careers, being their constant support. But then after um, this happened, um, was it different for women? Um, did they have less power or more power with the, this um, Suleiman giving um, this woman all this, I don't know, uh, emphasis? I would say more power. Mm -hmm. The problem in the public's eye um, with this relationship is they're not used to the sultan having a monogamous presumably or possibly sexual mm -hmm. relationship throughout with one woman. Right. And um, so that's, that role is never repeated. Mm -hmm. You can read my book, but, you know, there are ways in which they did have favorites. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't sort of in the public's face. And so mm -hmm. it's the queen mother. I think the blueprint that Harem lays down with the beginnings mm -hmm. of the imperial harem within the Tokapa Palace... Um, the role she plays in diplomacy, in philanthropy, this is huge. She acquires mm -hmm. and develops some roles, teaches them to... The Queen Mothers can do all of that more mm -hmm. because they are, it's a proper role. It's a proper role. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, no, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you go through another hundred years where they're very important Queen Mothers. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they're, re they, they're regents. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of young sultans. There's one or two that aren't quite mentally, you yeah. know, and they need to be... Yeah, so the mothers are, and then they set that role, and um, up till the end of the century, uh, at the end of the empire, mm -hmm. which um, is sort of over in 1922. It's a very long-lasting empire. Yeah. Um, the the women of the harem, particularly the mother of the reigning sultan, uh, maintains a great stature. May not have been as politically hands-on, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So I credit Hurem with some of that movement. Yeah. Well, we'll take uh, one more break and we'll be right back.
Welcome back again. Uh, I'm Karen Stark, and of course we're here with Dr. Leslie Pierce. And before we end the broadcast today, I was wondering, uh, Dr. Pierce, if you could tell us a little bit about this uh, television show based on um, exactly what we were talking about before the break. Well, first I should say that mm. Turkey has become an exporter of TV series, mm. um, and a couple have gone international, but this this one is, has been just amazing. Mm. Um, I heard that 100, I read 150,000 people, million people have watched it. And what's the Turkish name? Muhteşem uh, Yüzyıl. It means, translated as Magnificent Century, mm. which is a play on Suleyman the Magnificent, as right, he was known right. in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the main characters are whom we've been talking about, <laughs> uh, Suleiman and Harem, mm -hmm. um, and she's a dominant character in it. Uh, and it ends with the death of Suleiman. She predeceases him, so that's mm -hmm. also a story. Um, it has, in my opinion, some very strong points, and uh, it's also commercial television. I mm -hmm. mean, there's a yeah. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on the harem. In fact, some of the criticism uh, from on high um, was that Suleiman didn't get out of the harem enough. <laughs> so so it was, it was a domestic story, uh -huh. the story of a domestic household. And have you yeah. noticed more interest in Suleiman and that whole era because of the show? When you go to Turkey or speak at events? Yeah, people want to... Mm. I have a slide in it. Mm. I don't show it for the sake of... The, I mean, in my PowerPoint, I mm. have one slide there. I use it. To explain things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I always get a question, and people always get excited when we talk about the show. <laughs> but I want to say something. Um, that show, it's um, very long. Was it 100 and, I don't know, 40 episodes? Mm -hmm. And they got to be two hours long. So it's really a marathon mm -hmm. event. And it was over the space of four years that it was aired. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot from it. I wasn't going to watch it. I mean, I was already writing my book. I didn't write it because of the yeah, show. Of course, but of hey, course. it's going to be great for me, right? <laughs> Hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um and it was the Turkish female graduate students in New York who said, you've got to watch it. Oh. And I okay, oh, if you say so, I will. And um, I realized right away that I was going to learn something from it. And I will tell you one thing that I learned from it. Okay. And it's the opening credits. They kept changing the opening credits over uh -huh. there. You know, the, as they're showing director and all that, they have action. Yeah. And um, Suleiman's eldest son, not her son, the son of her rival. Mm -hmm. He's little then. He's like four. And he comes running towards the camera. And I'm watching this little kid and thinking, kids, children are huge in this show. Mm. Children are there. It's the domestic story, yeah. in a sense. And I have much more on children. Mm. And I am going to, in my acknowledgments, thank mm. them oh, for okay. that. So mm. there were things that, you know, when you're dealing with the, for the biography, it's good. They're showing everything that happens. Mm -hmm. And you know, like this, the children are huge, so they play a much bigger role. Uh, that's great because I, I think children are um, one uh, section of society that often gets forgotten in history and um, in uh, like histor in history books and also mm -hmm. in um, the media. Yeah. Well, it allowed mm -hmm. me to talk about her motherhood, mm -hmm. which I think I just gave facts in my first book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Dr. Pierce, for joining us today. Um, we had I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank well, you. so did I, Karen, oh, and thank great. you for inviting me. Oh, of course, anytime. And to our listeners at home, be sure to visit us on the web at medievalradio.org. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And please like us on Facebook. Uh, so from all of us here at Medieval Radio... Thank you for listening, and goodbye.